This podcast is brought to you by RMA, the Risk Management Association. RMA's sole purpose is to advance the use of sound risk management principles in the financial services industry. Learn more at rmahq.org. Hello, I'm Stephen Krasowski, contributing editor of the RMA Journal, and I'm here with Fran Garrett, Director of Global Markets Risk and Securities Lending at RMA. Today we're going to talk about LIBOR replacement, its impact on banks, where we see it going, and the specific risks associated with it. Fran, could you start us off by giving us a little background on LIBOR? Sure. So the London Interbank Offered Rate, better known as LIBOR, has had a long and influential run. Devised in 1969 as a method to price a syndicated loan deal with the Shah of Iran, LIBOR, which is an estimate of the interest rate that London banks would pay to borrow from each other, was later formally published by the British Bankers Association and grew to become an international go-to benchmark. Today, an estimated $160 trillion in U.S. dollar exposures is is tied to swings of LIBOR. Globally, LIBOR-related exposure has been estimated at up to $400 trillion in terms of covering auto and student loans, commercial and residential mortgages, corporate and syndicated loans, and various derivatives. But now, LIBOR's days of influence may be numbered. In fact, they number somewhere in the range of 1,300 days if things go according to plan. In its place will be alternative risk-free reference rates based on transactions that include overnight funding and repurchase agreements. So, with LIBOR coming to an end, what will be its replacement? So, the ARC, in the U.S., the ARC, or the Alternative Reference Rate Committee, identified SOFR as the replacement rate for LIBOR. It published a transition plan with specific steps and timelines designed to encourage adoption of the SOFR, which is the Secured Overnight Finance Rate and to establish SOFR term rates by the end of 2021. The ARC said in March of this year that LIBOR underpins $200 trillion in derivatives and loans, more than previously thought, thus underscoring the need for promoting a robust alternative. Derivatives account for about 95% of those exposures. SOFR addresses the vulnerabilities of LIBOR in two ways. It is based on actual lending rates between banks, which helps reduce the risk of manipulation. Meanwhile, unlike SOFR, LIBOR is not compliant with the International Organization of Securities Commissions, the international body that brings together the world's securities regulators and is recognized as the global standard setter for the security sector. Uh, They develop, implement, and promote adherence to internationally recognized standards for securities regulation. Uh, Back in 2014, IOSCO came out with their uh, benchmark industry standards, and that is the guideline by which uh, the rates will use going forward. Accordingly, SOFR is a good representation of general funding conditions in the overnight treasury repo market. As such, it will reflect an economic cost of lending and borrowing relevant to the wide array of market participants active in the market including not only broker-dealers, but also money market funds, asset managers, insurance companies, securities lenders, and pension funds. 
Um, Fran, what are some of the more important milestones in the ARC's transition timeline? So starting back on April 3rd of 2018, uh, the New York Fed began publication of the Treasury repo reference rates. Uh, on May 7th of that year, the CME group was scheduled to launch futures on LIBOR alternative. And then in the second half of 2018, there was uh, trading in bilateral uncleared SOFR swaps. Uh, the first quarter of this year, uh, trading began in cleared SOFR swaps with Fed funds as a price alignment interest. Uh, looking forward, in the first quarter of 2020, uh, central counterparties otherwise known as CCPs, will offer SOFR as an alternative PAI, which is that price alignment interest. And then in second quarter of 2021, CCPs will only accept new swap contracts for clearing using SOFR. And that will be instead of Fed funds effective discounting. Uh, I would say currently right now, uh, the ARC is ahead of their timeline uh, with the goal of uh, LIBOR going away by the end of 2021. So at this point, what do you see happening with LIBOR um, and where do you see it going in the next year to two years? So out of the UK, the Financial Conduct Authority would like to see the demise of LIBOR uh, sooner rather than later. It has put out a very firm message to the industry that LIBOR will not be available beyond the end of 2021 and it would be a black swan event if this was not to happen. They are pushing the industry extremely hard to work toward a safe conversion to the use of risk-free rates. They've used their regulatory powers already in the UK through a Dear CEO letter to make sure that banks are planning for the cessation of LIBOR and ultimately the adoption of the alternative risk-free rates, such as the sterling overnight index average in the UK uh, the SOFR in the U.S., and then you're seeing some of the other ones out of Canada, uh, Switzerland, Tokyo, and the European Union. Uh, so which financial institutions do you see being impacted the most? Uh, the banks likely to be most impacted are those that are the biggest derivative dealers and the biggest lenders in the leveraged loan space, uh, such as the money market firms like uh, Bank of Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, uh, J.P. Morgan, Morgan Stanley. So why is it important for panel banks to contribute to the calculation of LIBOR? So the panel banks will continue to contribute until the end of 2021 because they've already agreed with the FCA to do so. Uh, the FCA recognized there is a very big problem, and that's under EU benchmark regulations, there was a risk that LIBOR would be considered ineligible and could die within you know, the two-year time frame. So in other words, it would, it would cease to exist before the end of 2021. So the FCA asked all panel banks to continue tr contributing until the end of 2021 to provide a longer transition period. Uh, I would suspect that you know, there was some arm twisting involved, but the FCA got pretty much all of the panel banks to ag agree to contribute in order to reduce systemic risk that a poorly planned end of LIBOR would create. And how, could how can banks prepare now for the transition? So institutions impacted by the transition need to plan ahead for changes to their valuation and risk management processes and infrastructures. Uh, banks should begin reviewing uh, their loan documentation, 
for their existing portfolio of LIBOR loans. Uh, the primary, con primary consideration here is to ensure that the documentation provides for a viable alternative reference rate if LIBOR is no longer viable or no longer published. Because few people envision the end of LIBOR, some loan documents either do not have a replacement rate provision or the replacement rate provision is not viable. Banks must take advantage of every opportunity to modify the loan documents to, the, to incorporate a viable replacement rate provision while LIBOR is still being published. Now, for example, if a borrower approaches the bank requesting an extension, a modification, a waiver, or a concession of any kind, the bank should use the opportunity to incorporate a valid replacement rate provision. Uh, banks should have their general counsel prepare a standard replacement rate provision that is incorporated into all of their loan documents. When drafting the replacement rate provision, it is important to keep in mind that the future of LIBOR is uncertain and the exact manner of its end is not known for certain. Therefore, replacement rate provisions for LIBOR loans must be sufficiently broad to cover different scenarios and replacement rate provisions should provide for the possibility of an interim period between the end of LIBOR and a market consensus on its successor rate. And the other thing I would add here is, uh, you know, the ARC has uh, fallback fall provisions for contracts that they're continually publishing on their website, so I would encourage everybody uh, to check out their website. Uh, banks need to consider value transfer risk in assessing existing contracts and portfolios maturing after 2021 that are indexed to LIBOR, and in order to identify their concentrations of LIBOR-based products. Uh, with regard to market liquidity, Banks also need to monitor the market liquidity risk associated with current LIBOR-based longer-dated exposures as market depth shifts towards SOFR. Uh, another consideration also is stress testing in CCAR, and that will be impacted significantly by the transition. It is important for banks to make necessary updates to their risk identification process for the new SOFR based products and risk factors, taking into account market liquidity when assessing the complete risk and assessing the impact that a value transfer would have on risk-based capital calculations under different scenarios. Uh, rate basis risk is also an important consideration for banks preparing for the transition. Uh, banks need to consider the cross-currency and secured versus unsecured basis for multi-currency and multi-rate products. And banks should also keep a close eye on market conditions in order to be ready to shift to LIBOR's successor rate. But this is likely easier said than done because LIBOR has been a standard reference rate for many years. Borrowers are familiar with its historical trends and are likely more comfortable with LIBOR than with any alternative rates like SOFR. So what exactly should the second and third lines of risk management be looking at with regard to the transition between now and the end of 2021. So I guess I would start with uh, ICE ben Benchmark Administration took over administration and publication of LIBOR following the financial crisis, and it has worked with regulators and panel banks to make the submission process much more robust and thus de-risk the process as much as possible. 
The latest innovation is the waterfall methodology of level one to level three submissions. This ensures money market transactions are used in the determination of the submission whenever possible. It is only when recent transactions are not available that the submitter has to use expert judgment. Panel banks have been migrating to the waterfall methodology since the summer of 2018 and are all expected to be using it by April 2019. Uh, so we should be there now, and I would expect that most banks have made that conversion. Uh, the second and third lines of defense have to ensure that the data capture of potentially eligible transactions is accurate and robust. Then the algorithm to compute the ultimate submission must be validated against IBA's specification. Uh, finally, of course, all level three submissions where expert judgment is applied need daily testing to ensure that the basis for final submission can be substantiated by reviewing multiple market data sources. So let's kind of wrap up with um, the specific risks that you see associated with the replacement of LIBOR. Yes, it, you know, really to continue on the, the second and third lines of defense and what they should be looking at. Uh, first I would mention is new product approval processes. So for, so for future swaps, floating rate notes, eventually cash lending products, uh, following the firm's internal new product approval process to confirm business strategy, modeling system infrastructure and overall operational readiness. Uh, given you know, the high volume of existing and new products that will need to be approved, some firms may explore streamlining the new product approval process where you're transitioning to SOFR uh, to do something more on a macro level to approve all of the same products and features where it's just a switch to the new rate. Uh, for market risk, uh, as I mentioned previously, understanding the market liquidity of these products and how to capture them in models for VAR and stress testing systems and having appropriate SOFR product limits. Uh, also a consideration is potential change in market risk if some products transition to fixed rate instruments due to LIBOR cessation event and decline in market liquidity risk of uh, legacy LIBOR linked instruments. So really what it's talking about here is if LIBOR goes away before the end of 2021, uh, you need to be prepared. Uh, for treasury and treasury risk, uh, analyzing the basis risk between SOFR and other rates such as LIBOR and OIS, which is the overnight, to understand the impact on asset liability management and hedging. Uh, over time, understanding the impacts on building new funds transfer pricing, funding curves using SOFR, and the impact on product pricing. And then, you know, where appropriate, the timing of strategies. Sooner versus later, wait until executing SOFR, no changes till 2021. Uh, you know, is there any impact to tenor or structure as new deals extend past the phase out? And, you know, I would say personally, I believe it should be a stepped approach. And then I would also encourage, you know, treasury, you know, first line and second line you know, to look and see if there's any accounting issues that need to be addressed. Uh, from a counterparty credit risk standpoint, uh, how to measure margin for cleared and margin transactions and model potential uh, 
future exposure of SOFR derivatives? And then, uh, you know, is there regulatory relief of legacy derivatives transactions from initial margin and variation margin requirements if the transactions are not subject to uncleared requirements today? Uh, value transfer risk, understanding the potential change in fair values and mark the markets of derivatives and cash products. If LIBOR were to permanently cease and use fallback rates that are significantly different from those implied by market values. Uh, one issue that I, I think is understated is around model development and model validation. Uh, to fully understand the wide range of impacts on firms' valuation and risk management infrastructure, it will be important for firms to perform an assessment of their model inventory that references LIBOR across the enterprise. Uh, this will facilitate an understanding of the holistic uses of LIBOR, not only for interest rate derivative products, but also in areas such as loan origination, mortgages, asset liability management, and funds transfer pricing. This should allow firms to have as much lead time as possible to plan for what I would consider a significant amount of work required for the development and validation of these models in the SOFR environment. And this may potentially need to be substantially in place and approved by internal and possibly external stakeholders before the end of 2021, when banks are no longer compelled to make LIBOR submissions. Uh, and just like the new product approval process, where it's just a simple change in the rate from LIBOR, say, to SOFR, this is where firms might want to consider just giving a, a blanket approval in the validation process. And then ongoing, uh, you can validate each model, you know, appropriately. Uh, there's, you know, a significant reputational and legal risk and it could be, it could be and, and lend itself to a loss of business and or litigation due to concerns from counterparties, especially less experienced, for example, small, uh, retail, small and medium-sized institutional clients, where any repapering of transactions would result in value transfer that they may not consider to have been done in good faith. Uh, you know, there's also operational concerns, you have vendor engagement, you have strategic risk. Uh, from an IT uh, perspective, you have programming and other scoping issues around, you know, each segment work stream should create high level scoping plans, recommendations, and, you know, the resource challenges of IT hours request for potential transition activities. <clears throat> Uh, for systems, applications, technology changes, and a broad set of systems and applications and modification of the processes will be required to account for transition-related impacts across multiple segments. And that lends itself to, you know, firms really need to develop a transition project organization, you know, that would address budget, the pace of the change, the structure, uh, certainly, there will be costs associated with the transition, and you know it will bring significantly increased costs to update, you know, all of your processes, your systems, your products, your documents, and would require uh, dedicated resources across multiple segments simultaneously. And I would tell you, in 
in my discussions with uh, mid-tier banks, regional banks, and the money center banks, clearly the banks that are ahead in terms of transitioning have a dedicated person at a minimum, if not an entire department, that has buy-in from senior management, whether it's the CFO, the CRO, all the way up to uh, the chief executive. And then last but not least, and I think this is probably an understated concern, and that's around communications and education challenges and what's that strategy. Because communication with both internal and external groups is extremely critical. And communication to the customers must be frequent, they must be transparent, and most importantly, consistent organizationally. As you reach out to your clients in different parts of your bank or financial institution, the clients must be hearing the same message from all different parts of your institution. Fran, thank you for taking the time to speak with us today on this very important topic. Be sure to keep an eye and ear out for more LIBOR-related podcasts coming soon.